Hello, and welcome to The Gray Area, where I dispense advice and give interviews on relationships between gamers. My name is Genesee Gray, and this is the 34th episode in a weekly series called Super Giant Bastion. Last week's episode was a discussion with Juan, Carlos, and Laz from Fable Streams about their new RP Genesis. Please visit www.genesee.com to add to the forum discussion on that topic and to tell me your story. Today is Wednesday, September 7th, and today I speak with Greg Kasavin, creative director of the popular game Bastion from Supergiant Games. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, before we get to you, let's do news of the week. News of the week. Dead Island released a day one patch to help those with the uh, bug fixes that I spoke about last week, so hopefully that helps some of you. God of War Origins for PS3 will be released the 13th with a score of 8.8, and I like the original a lot, so I'm hoping to play this one as well. Uh, GameStop is now offering trades on iOS devices and will begin selling iPhones, iPads, and iPods starting this week. And rumor has it that Apple iPhone 5 is being released in early October, and they're discussing that it will be offered on all major carriers, which is kind of a first for an iPhone. And my news, personally, is that uh, Hurricane Lee has hit <laughs> where I am, and uh, lots of flooding, lots of rain, and EMT noises, so hopefully uh, the listeners will forgive any rainstorm sounds they hear in the background. <laughs> and now for some more news. Let's hear from Joshua Allen Clarence Octavian Roberts for Tech Talk. And welcome to another episode of Tech Talk, a segment on the Gray Area Podcast. This is Alan, your segment host. As usual, I like to pay kudos to my friend Genesee Gray for allowing me to be here on the podcast. This week on Tech Talk, I will be talking about Microsoft's fast boot feature and its upcoming operating system, Windows 8, and other events that happened in the world of tech recently. Tech Talk and News of the Week. This week in tech, Microsoft revealed more about its upcoming operating system, Windows 8. One of the new features that Microsoft is touting with this release is a new fast startup feature that dramatically speeds up the booting of Windows. Please note that I'm not going to get very detailed regarding the inner workings of starting up and shutting down Windows in this podcast. If you wish to inquire more about this information, the Windows 8 Engineering blog has this covered. Some of the design goals that Microsoft outlined for the building of a fast startup mode are as follows. Zero power draw when the computer is physically shut down, a new user session, the desktop, after starting up, and very fast start times between hitting the power button and being able to use the PC. Leading from that, this feature is pretty straightforward to explain. When shutting down your PC, Windows 8 does something a little different from past versions. This new feature is pretty similar to hibernate and sleep, so if you used either of these before, you have a pretty good idea of how this works, except there are a few key differences. First, instead of writing everything in memory to your hard drive, for example, your open Photoshop project, your open Firefox windows, so forth and so on, only the core part of Windows is written to disk before the system is shut down. The second difference is nothing is kept in memory, which is what sleep does meaning zero power draw when the system is off. Then, when the computer is powered on again, the last core session of Windows that was saved to disk before the system was shut down is resumed, bypassing the need to go through the normal boot-up process, hence a huge speed increase in startup time. Microsoft has stated in its performance trials that the speed boost is anywhere from a 30 to 70% increase. Okay, Tectobabble and Geekery out of the way. The question is why do you, the average person out there, 
care about this. Here are a few reasons why you should. Number one, fast computer start times across the board. Nay, no more having to get up and get a cup of coffee while Windows is booting up. I think this is a win in anyone's book right here. Number two, no additional power draw when your computer is off, meaning less than your power bill. Number three, better battery life on your laptop, tablet, etc. And here's also what happened to tech this past week. Microsoft also stated on its Windows 8 engineering blog that Hyper-V will be integrated into the 64-bit versions of Windows 8. The Star Trek has turned 45 years old. Okay, okay, okay. I know this isn't tech, but I'm including anyway just for the pure fun and geekery of it. And researchers at the Georgia Institute of Technology and Clemson University have possibly found a way to use seaweed, yes, you've heard me correctly now, seaweed, to boost the capacity of and make a cleaner manufacturing process for batteries. It looks like my time is up for Tech Talk this week. Back to you, Genesee. And a thank you to Josh. And now to you, Greg. What's your news of the week? Oh, man, I guess my... My focus these days has been on on new games coming out, so nothing uh, quite as uh, scary as rainstorms. <laughs> um, but I, I'm um, I just finished uh, Deus Ex: Human Revolution the other night, and um, I'm really interested in getting my hands on Space Marine at this point. Uh, sort of the antithesis of a game like Bastion, I guess, on some level. Okay. Um, but I'm a I'm an old uh, Warhammer Forty Thousand fan, and that game. That game is very cool looking to me, and like I guess um, right right now, you know, it's it's uh, the first full week of September. Now is when um, all the major blockbuster releases just start pouring in. I guess um, so. I'm I'm you know preparing myself and my wallet for the <laughs> for the catastrophe to follow. But um, yeah, I guess somewhere between. I also just got the um, the demo to that game, Hard Reset. Uh, just came out today um, on on it's like a PC exclusive like cyberpunk shooter. I haven't tried it yet, but I um, that's waiting in the wings for me. And so, yeah, it seems like a lot a lot of big new stuff's about to come out. So that uh, that's that's kind of it for me, I guess. What did you think of Deus Ex? I played it like briefly, and uh, actually, someone bought me the original Deus Ex series. So I'm going to start back at the beginning because I feel like I need to train. You know, I got to the point where where you were supposed to shoot the people in the walkway and all that, and and I was not good at targeting. I need to go back and train through all the old ones to get to the point where I can play the new one. I think. What do oh you think? well, well, it's gonna. Um, I, I think the the old ones will be a lot harder to to go back to. I mean, the the original in particular is is regarded as this. This like amazing classic, right? Um, mm-hmm. Personally, it didn't like, and and uh, I forgive this blasphemy to any of you out there who you know hold the original Deus Ex in like extraordinarily high regard. But I, like it, it, to me, that game had some really incredible moments in it, um, punctuated by like hours and hours of stuff that was just kind of okay. Um, and <laughs> okay. and like I I appreciate you know the 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 theory of like the open endedness of the gameplay, but when I often end up taking the path of least resistance in those games, which means just like going around and shooting people, and then and then like if the shooting isn't up to snuff with other shooters, uh, which in in the original Deus Ex uh, it wasn't for me. It um, it wasn't always like amazing, but then there are some moments in that game that that are really unforgettable. Um, it, the new one I liked I liked a lot. Um, I similarly played it, it pretty much as a straight ahead shooter. Um, with some like role playing stuff thrown in and like some pretty cool character customization, um, and the the world uh, of the game is 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 really strong overall. It makes me uh, it makes me wonder why like I'm I'm surprised that that kind of setting 
um, is done so rarely in games, um, relatively, to, you know, relative to like whatever, just straight sci-fi or fantasy. Like you don't see a lot of uh, cyberpunk type stuff. Um, so, so I liked it um, a lot. Um, but yeah, my expectations were were raised very high uh, by by some of the uh, reviews and stuff like that. But I, I think for me personally, it's probably my favorite game of that series. But again, like I, I don't hold the original at, at, at that. Like I don't put it up on that like highest pedestal that I think um, a lot of people do. Um, uh, but yeah, it's cool to play oh, yeah. a game that's open-ended um, and that lets you uh, specialize your character in different ways. It like scratches a lot of the same itches as games like Fallout 3, um, stuff like that. I see. See, I, I'm okay with Fallout, like Bioshock, even the shooting parts of Mass Effect, I feel like I can handle, although I'm not, I would not call myself a first-person shooter player, per se, but the pixel, it's like one tiny pixel that you have to aim with in Deus Ex, and it just blew my mind. I could not I could not target oh, with crap in that game. Yeah, it's super lethal also. Like they kill you really fast. Um they they have a whole like cover system in the game that they don't they don't necessarily like they they don't uh, you know, you could skip the tutorial for it, but yeah, if you don't use the the cover system then you die uh, almost instantly. <laughs> but that if you if you do use the cover system then you're like pretty safe and can just kind of pop out and headshot guys. But then at that point it's like it's pretty similar to to other first person shooters from like a moment to moment gameplay perspective nice i was looking at your blog and you have an awful lot of favorite games listed there uh let's Ah. see baldur's gate 2 bioshock grand theft auto ultima 5 street fighter 2 and several others uh what would be your favorite of those and why oh man um so i say like so my all-time favorite games i say like i can't even narrow it down to one i say it's like a i say it's a tie between ultima 5 and street fighter 2 which are two totally different games um, but but like, Ultima Five is this like hardcore whatever. It's a classic PC role playing game, um, and I played it when I was a kid. Um, and it's one of those games that was just absolutely mind blowing to me from its like world design and world development perspective. Um, just so open ended, so deep, um, and and so much to do in it. And you're you're dealing with the consequences of your actions all the time, and all that stuff that like today's role-playing games kind of harp about how they're you know they're dealing with you know real emotions and real choices. Like Ultima Five did all that stuff in the eighties. <laughs> um, today, you know, games just have better graphics. Um, and uh, I don't know. They, they obviously today's games do do a lot of things better, and uh, Ultima Five certainly can be hard to go back to. But um, as as far as role-playing games go, that that game was was just absolutely incredible to me. And then as for something like Street Fighter 2, I mean, that that to me is... So, like, Ultima 5 to me represents kind of like the emotional, experiential part of gaming. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Street Fighter 2 represents kind of the the um, the, the more physical side of it. Um, like, the, the, like, the sense of mastery um, at just, like, getting very good at a game mechanically in that sense of, like... Well, that game wasn't really easy to learn, frankly, but like it was very, very hard to master. Had like an infinitely steep, uh, le- like the learning curve went on forever, um, and it, it. But it had um, so much personality to it as well. Um, I like part of what I love a lot about fighting games is is actually not just the gameplay; it's it's that they're very character driven. Um, so that's I think the way that fighting games and role playing games tie back to me that is that they they're all about the characters. Um, and uh, stuff like that. So those are the ones that I hold in 
in the highest regard. But yeah, I've been playing games for a while, so there's a lot of stuff I, I can go on forever about <laughs> that, <laughs> why I love it. Let's go to that uh, childhood that you're talking about with the Ultima 5. Uh, I understand that you originally wanted to be an English professor. So can you take me through the child who plays games to the English professor desire and then into the, I guess, game designer? H- how does that that process work? Yeah, so so the, uh, the, the English professor thing is actually uh, something that came up in, in college um, and didn't last all that long. Um, so it's not a... Uh, a childhood uh, dream of mine. Uh, game making, in fact, is the thing that I've wanted to do since I was a little kid. Um, um, and so, yeah, and it and it ties back to Ultima. Actually, I was playing, you know, Ultima games when I was eight or nine years old, and I'm like, I, I don't know how this was done, but I this is what I want to do. Um, and then in high school, and you know, when I was a little older, I, I started trying to dabble in programming and stuff like that because that was the obvious way to. You know, I knew that games were programmed, and programming is really the the most obvious gateway into game development. Um, and I just didn't really take to it. Um, it uh, and maybe it was my own mind. You know, just sort of uh, maybe I just got discouraged or what. And maybe I could have made an awesome programmer, but I really don't think so. <laughs> I just don't think it's the way I'm I'm wired. Um, uh, but but I did take. I took more to writing than, than I did to like math and science and stuff like that. Um, and um, so I started writing about games straight out of high school, um, partly to justify all the time I was spending on them. I like, <laughs> you know, my parents are giving me a hard time and whatnot. And I'm like, see, I'm doing this productive it's thing. It's legitimate. And, Look. Yeah, exactly. It, like part of it was, yeah, it, I, I wanted there to be some sort of legitimacy there. I had to like feel like some of the time was productive. And, and also like I needed, I needed to be able to, subsidize uh, the behavior like I couldn't afford mm-hmm. all the games um, you know I, I it's like reviewing games I might be able to get them for free and then review them or you know the the idea of getting paid to do it was something I didn't really imagine at first but it eventually led to that and I got an internship at, at GameSpot um, right around the time I uh, started college and I ended up working there for more than 10 years and suddenly I kind of look back and realize I've been in the gaming press for for like 12 years um and uh i'm i'm i felt sort of no closer to my original goal of getting into game development so um i i had this sense of like i need to make it happen or i might miss the boat entirely and and i had an opportunity come up to go uh, work at electronic arts um on uh the command and conquer franchise because a guy i used to work with um was there and knew how much i wanted to make games and asked me if I was still interested and so yeah that's how I that's essentially how I got my start in game development um as a producer at, at EA and I was there for close to close to 3 years um left along with a couple of uh my my close uh, a couple of the close friends I made there and they formed Supergiant Games um and I joined with them um not not too much longer thereafter and we made we made Bastion um, so this is, um, I've been in game development for close to five years now, and this is the first time, uh, Bastion is the first game I've been able to work on in like a writer, creative director type of capacity, but it's really, you, you know, for me, it, yeah, it's been a, it's been a long road, uh, getting to this point. So this project really meant, um, an awful lot because it allowed me to do the stuff that I sort of always, uh, really always dreamed of doing, um, making, making levels coming up with, uh, the, 
you know, the stories and the characters and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that the uh, media section with GameSpot kind of became the bridge to get you to electronic arts. Let's go to when you're working there and tell me a little bit about what it's like making your first game, which I believe was Command & Conquer 3, um, two, two of them that you made. What is that like, having that creative experience for the first time? Yeah, um, so I joined uh, Command & Conquer 3 um, while it was pretty far along in development already. Um, And so, and and it's part of a big team, right? So I I joined a team of like nearly 100 uh, people or so. Um, And it was, um, the transition was pretty, like, it went pretty smoothly for me overall, at least professionally. Uh, Personally, it was weird because I, um, I was still technically based up here in the Bay Area um, near San Francisco, but I accepted a job in Los Angeles, and I, in fact, never permanently moved. I ended up commuting to oh, L.A. Um, for, like, yeah, that entire period, um, which, uh, and uh, so, yeah, but that's, uh, that's another story. <laughs> um, as, far as, as far as the work itself went, um, I'd, I'd sort of been, you know, my fascination with game development is such that I, I felt pretty prepared for what I was getting into just having studied it. Um, I, I knew it wasn't, um, in, in spite of the fact that it's a childhood dream of mine and all that, um, I, I feel as though I have not like over-idealized it in my head. Like I knew it was going to be rough sometimes, and it was. Um, and it, it definitely had its ups and downs, and you know the hours could be really long and stuff like that, but the hours were really long at GameSpot. Um and for me, I, I'm I'm one of those people who like you know, I get to work with games for a living. I'm like willing to spend more than the average amount of time per week in exchange for that in order to like have the privilege of um, working in this type of capacity. Um, it's a you know not everyone shares that view, um, and and that's uh, you know it's a it's a complicated uh, subject. Uh, but in my case, it's like I had built up the idea of game development so much in my head that I was willing to work uh, very, very hard, um, you know, in, mm-hmm. in whatever that meant to me. It's, and plus, since I, since I didn't really have any kind of home life while I was in <laughs> L.A., like, I had nothing better to do than just to keep <laughs> working. Um, yeah, so it's, um, it, it's very... It's, uh, the, the other thing is that GameSpot, um, since it's a website, like... I and my my job there involved working with like a lot of the different departments and I was working with the engineers and the graphic designers and stuff like that. Uh so that type of experience really helped me uh make the transition um in a uh, you know if all I was doing was like writing game reviews I I think um I would have felt a lot more um, out in the cold as I was trying to get started. Uh, I did want to ask you about that because I've known a few people that have gone from kind of the journalism side of reviewing games or being on um, different magazines for gaming and they've kind of transitioned into the developer. And I guess in my mind, I kind of imagine that you have to have like a series of really impressive degrees to be a game developer and some sort of like massive coding experience or something before you can get that job. And I always wondered how someone who is a journalist would end up in that sort of development side and be able to make that kind of bridge between the two. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I think uh, this is probably true of many industries, but um, and it was surprising to me uh, to discover it, but it, it really, I think in, in the game industry, you know, who you know matters as much as, as what you know. Mm. Um, and, it, and even in my case, where I was editor-in-chief 
um, of a major gaming publication, I had I had very few, if any, real inroads into getting a job. And I mean, it would have been a huge conflict of interest for me because I was like reviewing these companies' games. So I didn't really know anyone at these companies. And sure enough, it turned out that one of my former colleagues was like my my gateway. You know, I got the job on my own merits or whatever, but but I wouldn't have found out about it if not for this guy. Um, so so. Um, but I think like the the other side of it is that the game industry it's it's formed by a bunch of uh, frankly a bunch of dropouts right it's like <laughs> no one no one taught game development in schools it's even these guys like Bill Gates or whatever there are people who were self starters who weren't like content with what they were learning in school and and uh, left to go do their own thing um, obviously there are people with like computer science degrees and uh, very very educated people in the game industry now but. Uh, I think it, traditionally it's been very accepting of people with no formal education, um, as long as they have that drive um, and and the experience to show for it of like being able to make stuff um, on their own, like self-taught programmers and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I think that that type of spirit is still um, alive and well today, where you have uh, independent game developers and and mod, you know, people who make mods and stuff like that. Like the 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 means are out there for people to just like go and do it themselves. Um, and learn and teach themselves and everything and basically just uh, build up a track record and and I think that's what um, that's what people you know hiring for uh, game development positions are ultimately going to look for they just want to know what you've already done uh, that uh, and you know what you could contribute um, so yeah it's um, a lot of people ask how to get started and there's no there's really no formula to it but I think the the do it yourself uh, type of approach um, is a is a can can be a good place to start. I wanted to ask about uh, working at GameSpot, considering that you probably have you know a certain core people that you work with, and then going to a place like EA where the teams might vary, you know, from fifty to hundred people per team. Was it a, a big transition for you going from, you know, the amount of group of people you were working with for GameSpot to working to EA? Was it very different? Um, yeah, that that was so. Th- one of the big differences for me was was definitely what you're what you're touching on, like especially since I'd been at GameSpot for a long time, and I was like. I was used to the people around me, um, and I'm not, like, by my disposition, I'm not super, I'm not the sort of person who, like, has an easy time of, of meeting new people. Mm. So just being surrounded by an, an entirely new group of people um, it was pretty intimidating, and thankfully, um, th- this guy, Amira Jami, who, my former colleague, who, um, who, who t- told me about the job in the first place, he was there to help, you know, introduce me around and, and so on. Um, and I just, you know, I was able to like get straight to work, and thankfully, I, like my my reputation, you know, preceded me. I think in a generally positive way with most of those guys. So I I had an easy enough time of of meeting them. But yeah, it, it, there's definitely that, you know, that sense of like I have to acclimate myself to a totally new work culture here. Mm-hmm. And one of the surprises for me was that like. You know, we always thought of ourselves as pretty informal at GameSpot because we're like a bunch of video game reviewers and whatnot. But like Game uh, EA, by comparison, was like way more sort of loose um, and people making, <laughs> you know, people just like joking around and being jackasses and whatnot. <laughs> like that that type of behavior was way more common at EA uh, relative to GameSpot. Like I felt like I was 
you know, more of like suddenly I felt all like formal or something <laughs> like that. Um, but that was cool because I, I went into EA expecting like a more corporate environment and it wasn't that way. That's good. Let's talk about uh, command school, which I think is a really interesting concept. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to know who came up with that idea and what was your role in it? And also, if you could tell the listeners what that is. Uh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh, command school was basically, it, it was like a video show about Command and Conquer. Um, and it was like, it was focused around like like competitive play in Command and Conquer. So it was like showing... Uh, Command and Conquer, of course, is is a real time strategy game series, and RTS games have always been around. Like, uh, they, they've always had a, comp- a competitive element to them. So this show was about like, like you know, giving tips on how to play proficiently, and also like um, showing showing high level matches um, and stuff like that. Um, and the the person who came up with it, I believe, is is a guy named Dave Silverman, um, who uh, who was like the head uh, marketing guy. Uh, on Command and Conquer, I believe he is now. Uh, in fact, I know for a fact that he he is now working on like the Bioware stuff, um, and it works on like Mass Effect and whatnot. So he's since moved on uh, from Command and Conquer. But he had this, yeah, he had this vision of kind of like ESPN, you know, mm-hmm. sports zone, but for real time strategy games, and it, it was a pretty ambitious idea. Uh, and I, um, so they they did, I guess, like a casting call for you know people who would be on the show and i uh, i guess i just went in uh and tried out for it uh and and the people the people like doing the casting they didn't know that i and again i i'm not like i i have experience in in front of uh doing on camera stuff just from GameSpot, but like i it's not it's something that i'm like traditionally trained to do but it was funny yeah because in in the audition they're like wow like you're a real natural at this i'm like no i've just been doing you know video reviews for the last eight years you should have seen should have seen how bad i was when i started Uh, (laughs) but anyway i yeah so i you know i got the part and we did that for a while Um, did they know that you wrote both of them (laughs) the command and conquer three Oh, they um well they were looking for people from the dev team yeah okay i was still like the new guy I was still the new, you know, relatively new there, and yeah, I wanted uh, I wanted to do it. It was fun because we got to talk to the community and and stuff like that. It sounds like is... a really fun idea. Who would not want to go to a, a gaming learn how to game better school? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Definitely nice. Let's talk about Super Giant Games now. Um, it's a bit unclear in the info I was reading, but I'm guessing that you founded that with Amir, and I'm going to pronounce their names wrong. I'm sorry, Amir Rao and Gavin Simon. Uh, it, those are uh, those are indeed their names. Um, I'm I'm technically not. Uh, th- they are the two co-founders, uh, not me. Ah. Um, I was um, I was roommates with with Amir um, at the at the time. So I, I alluded to them previously. We all quit EA. Uh, at around the same time, and and um, and we were talking uh, about what what we wanted to do next, um, and we were really inspired by uh, some of the stuff that was already happening uh, in independent games. Um, and um, they uh, they basically ended up dropping everything, uh, moving into a house, and uh, forming Supergiant Games, and started working on Bastion. Um, and I was able to join them sometime later. Um, in my case, um, I I didn't or wasn't able to join them right from the start because um, uh, I, I I took a job at 2K Games um, where I worked for a year 
Um, and I, um, I, part of it was like, I got to, you know, sort of go home and reset my, my own, uh, family situation since I'd been commuting, uh, to, um, to LA. Mm -hmm. And so the, the idea of like going from one sort of unstable situation into uh, another like super high risk uh, situation was like, um, I, I, I just wasn't able to do it, but thankfully, um, I, yeah, you know, we, I stayed good friends with those guys and we found a way to make it work uh, a little bit later on. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's the, that's the short version of it, but we, yeah, we wanted to, it's a, it, we're a team of seven people now, uh, including our voice actor. And we just wanted to do things our own way in short. And we were seeing some really great stuff coming out of small teams and wanted to try our, try our hand at it. I do have a question about how the seven got together. Are you all friends from EA as well, besides just Amir and Gavin? How did the art team come on board and how did, um, let's see, Darren Korb and some of the others get involved? Did Supergiant Games hire specifically four people or were you all friends and ended up kind of getting drawn together towards this new project? Yeah. So it's, it's kind of a combination of the, of the two. Um, Amir, uh, I would say is really at the heart, um, of the company and his, his connections to like, like he's, he's the person that, that, um, everyone at the company knows or has worked with before. Uh, so, uh, Amir, Gavin, and I all work together at EA. Um, then, uh, Andrew Wang, uh, who's our chief technology officer, he was also one of our roommates, uh, in LA, but he goes way back uh, with Amir where they were both starting out as interns, uh, in the game industry together. Um, so he's our other engineer. Uh, and then Darren, um, our audio director and Logan Cunningham, our voice actor, uh, they have known Amir since middle school. They're like playing soccer in middle school together. <laughs> um, so, so um, Darren and Logan um, are based in New York, and they were actually roommates um, at the time the project started. So, uh, the reason we were able to do something relatively ambitious with with our voiceover um, is through that connection. Um, yeah. And then um, the 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 only person that that we didn't sort of all know either together or through Amir at the beginning of the project was was Gen Z, um, our artist. Um, and, and yeah, she's, uh, she's someone that we, um, that we met, um, along, along the way, you know, again, through, through mutual friends and stuff like that. And, uh, she joined the project, you know, when, when the look of it was still very much undefined, but we kind of knew what we wanted tonally and, and with the fiction and everything. And she was able to get in there and just uh, create this really, uh, fantastic, uh, art style that we all fell in love with. But yeah, you know, for the most part, um, we're, we are a bunch of people who've known each other and worked together for a long time before. And, and I think that's, uh, in our case, that's really helped us uh, get to this point because we knew what one another's strengths were and, and what it's like to work with each other and all that kind of stuff, uh, that, that, um, uh, you know, the, the team chemistry was, was there sort of from day one. And that allowed us to, to do, um, to do our best work, I think. Mm-hmm. There's always a nice energy when people get together to kind of form something from the ground up and everyone's passionate about it and it's their very first game especially and I'm sure that's exciting to be a part of something like that. Yeah, absolutely. You know how I feel about Darren Korb, by the way, for the music. (laughs) I I just love the soundtrack. And also my sometime co-host, Tinzian, says that you're to give him a a big awkward man hug for that. And he wants you to pass that on. He, uh, Darren likes those, so we'll do. Yeah, Uh, yeah, I mean, the the soundtrack has been 
the the res- the response to the soundtrack has been really really uh, incredible. I think even uh, even Darren is sort of beside himself um, about it. Um, we 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 definitely had high hopes for how people would take it, and it was really important to us during development. But it's one of those things where you just never really know um, mm-hmm. when when you uh, when you put something like that out there. And I think it's been probably the most universally praised uh, aspect of the game. A lot of soundtracks for games, you can play them and everyone just says, oh, you know, that's a first-person shooter. Oh, look, that's a space game. Like, you can tell just by listening to the soundtrack that it's for a game. And this has something different. It has sort of like an acoustic, kind of interesting, you know, almost Western thing about it that, that doesn't necessarily scream, I'm a video game. You know, yeah, it's good to we, listen to. We, wanted, we really wanted that. I'm glad it comes off that way because that was definitely um, uh, one of the one of the things we wanted to achieve with it is like, because it was so, I mean, since we wanted to make a game with a strong sense of atmosphere, basically from day one, we knew that the music and the audio was going to be really important to that. Um, and, uh, you know, along with the visuals. Um, but, but like, yeah, uh, Darren, you know, we we knew the kind of tone we wanted for the game early on, and it did have that kind of uh, fantasy frontier western feel mm-hmm. to it. Um and um, Darren was was the first to basically start creating real content around that idea. He 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 started scoring this music, um, and um, we we really you know we uh, again we like fell in love with it. We're like yeah that's it. Um, and so he he made um, the tone of the he was able to like articulate the tone of the game with with actual with actual material. And we uh, you know a lot of the stuff he did very early on is is uh is in the game like like even the the main uh the main menu theme and everything is like a pretty old uh piece of music uh that he created early early on the project neat let's move to bastion the reason we're here a uh, beautifully hand-painted 2d game with a lovely story uh for those listeners who haven't played the game what would you summarize the theme of bastion is or how would you describe bastion to someone who hasn't played or hasn't picked it up yet yeah, so so two very different questions, I would say. I, I haven't um, I haven't talked a lot about the theme of it because I, I don't want. First of all, I like it's like we want it to be open to interpretation. Um, but I but I am happy to talk about it. Um, but I'll answer the other question first. Um, the the way y- you know we describe it as it's an action role playing game um, in which there's this mysterious narrator who marks your every move, and uh, we wanted it to have this kind of lush. A 2D art style to be this uh, this sort of a uh, very beautiful and atmospheric game, um, uh, and also a game that was like really easy to pick up and start playing, um, and felt really good uh, playing it like moment to moment. Um, you know, had really tight and responsive controls, and presented a lot of really interesting choices around character customization, and then took you on like a really uh, you know hopefully a very interesting story uh, through the use of this narration technique. Um, the the basic premise of the game is that. Um, this this surreal uh, catastrophe uh, has torn the world of the game to pieces, and you're the surviving character who makes his way to this location called the Bastion, where all your people were supposed to go in case anything went wrong. But the only person you find there is an old man uh, who believes he has the power to set everything right. Uh, so you join forces with him to to restore the Bastion to its uh, full power. Um, that's the basic setup, you know, explained in the first 20 minutes of the game, and hopefully it's. It's made a lot more interesting through the use of uh, our narration technique because you're you're sort of discovering all this uh, as you play. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And yeah, and then, but you know, at the at the heart of the story, and like what what that theme was, um, was this idea of um, of uh, overcoming regret, uh, actually, actually, and um, it it's it, all the all the characters in the in the world of the game, they've all lost something, they've all lost a lot, um, and they're dealing with it in different ways, um, and some characters like sort of are are overcome by uh, what's happened and and cannot cannot go on um other characters are like pick themselves up and say you know what i have no choice but to keep going forward in spite of what has happened and i'm gonna try to find uh i'm gonna try to find what's good in this situation um in in spite of all the terrible events that have happened and so on so it's it's just kind of a meditation on that theme um and the narrator himself is a character where uh, i think uh, y- you know he there, there's a lot of evidence in the way he talks that he he's an old man and he's he can't help but reflect back on his life, um, and in spite of all the great accomplishments that he's made, um, he he's uh, very regretful um, about certain things, um, and and he has his own way of dealing with that. Um, so that that's you know getting back to what I was saying before, that's kind of like the universal type of theme that I was interested in from a story perspective because I my feeling is that like I don't think like regret is a feeling that is uh <laughs> you know reserved for old men I think even mm-hmm. you know yesterday my my daughter went to soccer pra- she's like six she went to soccer practice for the first time and like forgot her water bottle um and she gets home and I'm like where's your water bottle and her face just like turns into this mask of tragedy because <laughs> she forgot her water bottle and it's like don't worry don't worry we're going to go and we're going to get it and we got the water bottle but like like people experience regret I think from a very young age it's a it's a horrible feeling and we all have to learn how to deal with it um in one yes. way or another so that's yeah that's uh that's what uh we that's the kind of stuff that we're trying to deal with in 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 the in the game story, all all couched in a you know in a colorful and cool looking uh, action RPG because we don't want to be didactic, right? It's like <laughs> I, I hate I hate things that are like allegorical or or preachy. Um, it's like it's 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 a work of entertainment, um, mm-hmm. in fact, and it and it it is meant first and foremost to entertain. Um, so I I don't want people to feel like they got baited into some kind of moral. <laughs> You're you know, watching break. Dune. Yeah, right. No. And I and I love Dune. I love Dune but, uh, too. Yeah. There's a lot of talking yeah, at the beginning yeah. of that movie. Definitely so. Yes. I understand you created the world characters and the story for that. What was your inspiration for this game initially? Oh man. Um it's it's hard so it's funny. I like I always fumble with the question of like what was my inspiration because it wasn't like I don't even know where to begin with that because um, mm-hmm. it was so many things um, and I think like for me it does it does tie back to how I've wanted to do this type of stuff all my life so it's like it probably on some weird level does go back to those early Ultima games and everything um, so it's really not um, I can't point to any one or two things um, and it is like a combination of um, everything from the games I've played to 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 the books I've read and you know, all, all kinds of different media. Um, mm-hmm. but, but like, um, tonally, you know, as we were trying to figure out the tone, like the one sort of concrete thing I can mention is like, um, there's, there's the author Cormac McCarthy who's written the road and all the pretty horses and, uh, no country for old men and stuff like that. And he has this, um, he has this kind of, uh, gritty and minimal style. Um, but, but he can like paint these kind of beautiful, 
uh, scenes, uh, but at the same time jump to the like really dark subject matter um, right away. And it's it's he's just like an amazingly lyrical author. So we were thinking early on, like, what if instead of being a great American author, he just wrote video games? Like, what would they? <laughs> so so part of it for me was like um, it, I, I w- it was influenced directly by his um, by his style. But but at the same time, I think he he deals with uh, the you know his all of his stuff is like set on Earth or whatever, and it's like usually sort of uh, some of it is like historical fiction, and um, we wanted to take it in like a more fantasy direction, and I I didn't want it to be to deal with like evil uh, as much as his novels tend to do, because all video games, you know, so many video games deal with evil, and I wanted to. I, I was interested in a story that could be more like uplifting than that ultimately, but that still had, um, still had like a bittersweet quality to it. Um, and wasn't just like saccharine. So mm-hmm. I, I think a part of my influence is also just like traditional fairy tales. Um, and not, not like the Disney versions of fairy tales that are very, very kind of whitewashed, uh, for children, but like traditional fairy tales, I think dealt with pretty like serious subject matter, but in a way that was appealing both you know, to, to listeners of all ages, um, and thinking about like, what would that type of story be like using, you know, in the medium of games? Um, so yeah, that, that, I guess that gives you some of it. Yes, very much so. I think I remember reading something about the kid and I was struck by the fact that when you first start to play the game, you see the kid and for some reason that makes it like a lighter game at first. And then you realize, no, it's not really a lighter game. The fact that he's a child isn't going to save, save you, you know? And, and I thought that was interesting that a lot of people play games to kind of be the super, uh, you know, ultra powerful extra hero that they're not in real life. And I kind of remember reading that you were saying that you chose the kid because you wanted people to be the sort of regular Joe that's kind of dealing with all of this and not, not a super uber powered guy that's going to beat everything down really easily. Can you talk a little bit about the kid as the protagonist and kind of what what's going on with that? Yeah. So that's, um, that's, that's quite right. Where, um, like the, the sort of design, the design goal with the kid was, was to make, uh, like an empathetic uh, protagonist. Um, having the player empathize with him was, was the main thing we wanted to achieve where like, as, as, as you suggested, I think in a lot of, in a lot of games, like, you know, the space Marine game I mentioned early on, you don't play games like that because you empathize with a space Marine. You do it because like you, you wish, you know, you were, nine feet tall and had <laughs> badass armor and a machine gun that fired explosive rounds or whatever. Um, it's like a power fantasy, right? Right, and, stress and, release. Yeah, so, stuff like that. And, and, and that's fine. Um, it's just like, that's what, that's what most games do. Um, and and in, given the type of tone that we wanted this story to have, it's like we want it to be a more personal story. Um, and, and so the the way, you know, we were hoping players would feel about this character was not about like, man, I wish I was the kid and I wish I had to lug around a really heavy hammer. It's more like, I just want to help him to succeed. I want to make sure that he gets out of this okay. Um, and, and so having, so, so like, he's just always, he's very determined and he's kind of like struggling through the game. He's always falling on his face um, and picking himself up, mm-hmm. um, uh, literally. And that, and that, act of him like picking himself up is like sort of you know it's sort of metaphorical for his whole uh existence in this world and uh, and so on um and he 
he's like in a lot of ways he's sort of the traditional silent protagonist kind of like kind of like Link from Legend of Zelda. Um, but we do give him a backstory. It's just sort of optional um, for you to 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 learn about it because um, we wanted players to be able to like um, identify you know identify with him, n- not have this character like have a big bold personality um, that that could be distracting. You, um, and then hopefully, yeah, by the end of the game, you you feel very much um, aligned with him. By the time you get to the uh, by the t- uh, time you get to the ending and all that, um, so that's yeah. And at the same time, you know, he's meant to fit the world, um, so he's got his he's got his kind of bandana, and he evokes some of the uh, some of the like fantasy frontier uh, types of stuff um, that that uh, we were talking about before. Mm-hmm. How did the idea for the voice of the narrator develop? Uh, it's kind of a novel concept, because usually there are companions or other means, I guess, the developer uses to kind of reflect your actions back to you. But I never heard an actual voice before this. Yeah, um, well, so um, it, it started off fairly uh, modestly. Um, and, and again, it's like, I, I think it wouldn't have been possible unless we unless we had this sort of uh, personal connection to someone like Logan, uh, who's the voice of our narrator and, and we think is this uh, really terrific actor. Um, what, what the narration did for us ultimately was it like, it solved a problem that we were struggling with at the beginning, which was we wanted, we knew up front that we wanted to make a game that had, that had like some kind of emotional weight to it that, that could stick with players after they were done playing it. Um, but we also didn't want the story uh, to interrupt the play experience, as often tends to happen in role-playing games, where you either get like a, you know, big cutscene or a wall of text, you know, explaining long-winded backstory mm-hmm. or something like that. We we just didn't want any of that stuff. Uh, and and at first it seemed contradictory, um, but then like Amir uh, basically tried the narration at a certain point uh, while the game was being prototyped. Um, uh, you know, had Logan record some lines and 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 hooked it into like what was then a very crude looking prototype. Um, and the effect was pretty dramatic. Um, and it happened to align, uh, with the story ideas, uh, that I'd already, uh, you know, that I was already mulling, um, at that point, um, there was already like a sense of this bastion location and this old man who was going to be the caretaker of the location. It's like, Oh, he could be, he could be the narrator. Um, <clears throat> And uh, we and because we had access to this one good, uh, really great voice actor, um, I should say, and so part of it um, was from our like creative goals, um, and and part of it was out of like the practical reality of the resources that we had available to us. Um, that's that's really uh, where it came from. And you know, again, like as we were using the technique, we just liked it. Um, you know, we want we wanted to use it more and more. Um, until it became like a pervasive uh, part part of the game, so it happened sort of very uh, organically that way. Um, it wasn't something where, like, when we first started thinking about the game, um, you know, that that idea, you know, I, I don't think was anywhere near the top of our minds. It strikes me a lot like a book. I'm a pretty avid reader, and this a lot of books have sort of the running monologue that kind of tells you what the person's thinking and and yeah. various things like that. And it kind of it kind of struck me that way. Like the, it felt like home a little bit when I played. Yeah, uh, that's. Uh, I mean, it, it definitely serves that that type of purpose. Um, and uh, it, it's funny to me because yeah, like when we when we started, you know, expanding the narration of the game, and and I was on board and doing all the writing and all that. I don't know that we. Like, like, I really appreciate all the praise that, that the technique uh, has received. 
Um, but but I don't think like we ever looked at it as like this this innovative thing that we were doing necessarily um, because to me it is like a well understood um, technique as far as like books go. Um, but in games, for whatever reason, it hasn't been done all that much. Um, there have been games with really great narration in them, like um, uh, I, I like Max Payne and uh, Prince of Persia: The Sands of Time. Mm. But they don't they don't like they still don't use narration sort of they don't use it exclusively the way we do. And and I guess it's like not as per- pervasively done um, as in our case. So I think we ended up taking it over the top uh, in in that sort of way. Um, but yeah, I. I think, um, yeah, you know, to me, it's it's a relatively underutilized uh, technique in games, uh, whereas in books and stuff, the idea of like having an unreliable narrator is is, you know, centuries old and known to be like pretty interesting and stuff like that. So we wanted to play around with those kind of concepts um, while adding uh, the interactivity to it to make it feel uh, fresh. Neat. Let's take a little break here and hear from our friend Skaggy the Poet. He has a new segment he's going to be premiering for us today called Get the Girl, and I'm anxious to hear and uh, see what he has to say. Hello there and welcome to episode 1 of Get the Girl, Kill the Baddies and Save the Entire Planet. Gaming related poetry brought to you by me, Skaggy the Poet. Obligatory introductions are always necessary on the first episode of a new podcast segment. So, here we go. My name's Skaggy, I'm a poet and I write poems about games. Also, I write parody, I take songs and rip them off, I mean change them so you might not recognise them, into poems as well. Um, introductions are really needed, so I'm going to do that with a parody poem. So, this poem is called Introducing Skaggy. I am the very model of a modern armchair general. I've battled in games from tabletop to computers, oh. I can remember my first D&D and quote my fights historical, from kobold to devil, in order categorical. I'm very well acquainted with first-person shooters. I understand all weapons and how to be a looter. For about new games, I don't have a lot of news, as on beer and scratchings, my money's often all used. I'm fairly good at RTS and managing resources. I know when to research weapons, castles or horses. I gather vegetables, animals and minerals. Cause I am the very model of a modern armchair general. I like my gaming intriguing and never ever orthodox. Even better if like Doctor Who, it's a confusing time paradox. I can remember gaming tactics always quite audacious. In games taking place in the future to the Cretaceous. Then about it all, I'll write a poem in any form. And to rhyme and reason, I really don't conform. In short, in gaming matters, major to minimal, I am the very modern of a modern armchair general. So, I hope you enjoyed that. Thanks to Jen for letting me put that together for her. hope she enjoyed it as well. Like it? Let Jen know. Got an idea for a poem? Let Jen know. 
It's as simple as that. Hate it? Do the same. Or you can contact me. My email address is skaggythepoet at aol.co.uk. I can also be found on Twitter at skaggythepoet, Google Plus at skaggypoet, and I've also got a blog, skaggythepoet at WordPress. And on there you can find all sorts of poems, including lots that I've done for the DDO cast and just general tats that I've written over the many months and years of my long soulful existence on this planet. <sighs> anyway, I hope to have one of these segments out every fortnight. Could be more if you've got plenty of ideas that spur me on. Until we speak again, toodle pip. A big thank you to Skaggy. Let's return to our discussion with Greg on Bastion, and let's talk a little bit about level design. I understand you did most of the level design for this. Uh, are there uh, any hidden personal touches that you added to that? Uh, I did. So I did um, about I, I did about half of the level design um, uh, together with Amir, and oh, then okay. uh, and Gavin contributed some too. So I yeah, I definitely did not do. Uh, most of it, um, uh, but yeah, the, plenty of work to go around anyway. Um, the, uh, I mean, it's like the whole thing was so personal. The, the like the 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 writing is is very very personal. Um, in a lot of ways, um, I definitely, the the narrator's own personality is like me ex- extrapolating to what I'm gonna be like when I'm in my sixties <laughs> or something like that. Um. Some of the uh, some of the levels I worked on that I'm I'm really happy with the response to are are like uh, the hanging garden and I, I assume we can go into yes. spoilers, spoilers here safely but um, the hanging gardens where you first meet Zulf um, is one of the first is actually the very first level I worked on and I'm really happy with ha- how that one turned out um, it's the one where you like first see all the ashen statues of of the different um, uh, people who didn't make it from the calamity. Um, I, I think that one, you know, emotionally is very strong, um, how, how it turned out. And then uh, Prosper Bluff, uh, where you first meet Zia, um, and she's singing the, that uh, really fantastic song that, that Darren wrote, um, uh, sung by uh, Ashley Barrett. Um, I, I'm really happy with how that level turned out also. Um, and, uh, you know, we wanted the game to be really fun to play from moment to moment, um, because uh, we think that's important. Um, cause people, uh, you know, so that people want to get through the whole experience, but we did, um, include uh, levels like those that are, that are more just about, uh, learning about the world and, and uh, experiencing the mood of the game. Um, so th- those are, those are some of my personal favorites of, of the ones I worked on. And then also like, uh, actually Amir and I co- collaborated on, um, on the end uh, sequence uh, when uh, you're, uh, yeah, the final confrontation with Zulf. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm happy with how the response to that has been overall. It seems like people have been uh, pretty, pretty struck by that part. And we, we definitely wanted the ending of the game to have an impact. Um, so I'm glad that it has uh, for, uh, for a lot of the people we've heard from. I should say I have not finished the game yet, although I've read ah. most of the, I'm glad I post and everything else. <laughs> but, I'm glad I didn't uh, totally uh, give it away then. No, that's okay. Yeah. I do yeah. remember. I believe that I did smash the bartender's ashes. Yeah, and, yeah. And at the time, I didn't feel like you know. I just thought, well, 
it's just a pile of ash, you know, it's not like any big thing. And then everyone was talking about the moral implications of that. And I began to feel slightly guilty that maybe Uh, maybe I shouldn't have smashed the bartender. Yeah, that's, that's funny. It's like, that's kind of what it's, that, that, that was kind of a key moment for us. Cause yeah, you, you smash the bartender and the, the narrator says, Rondi always wanted his ashes scattered here. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, there's no way you could have known that as a player. And that's part of us playing with a narration technique, but you haven't, you know, as the character, you haven't done anything immoral necessarily, because yeah, according to the narrator, it's that's exactly what uh, the bartender would have <laughs> would have wanted you to do. Uh, but yeah, it, it's there for you to consider and and think about and so on. And it was fun to uh, take those like really basic uh, gameplay interactions and add something to them. You know, through through the narrative, we tried to put that all over the place, um, and that was one of the earliest moments that we found, you know, as we were letting people play the game, it like, it had, a, it left a, a pretty strong impression. So we're like, okay, good. This is the kind of stuff we want to do. And we're just going to keep doing more of this. Mm-hmm. Let's move to your blog a little bit and talk about some of the design elements you describe in your post one thing at a time. And one of the first ones that you say a good game, one of the ways to measure a good game is to assume that no one cares uh, about your approach to storytelling at first. Can you consi- can you talk a little bit about that? It's something I never really considered that when you're beginning the first of a series or or a standalone game or a movie, no one really knows what your story is and they don't care. <laughs> can you yeah. tell us more about what that means? Yeah, I I would I would even go so far as to say that um I think sequels carry the same exact burden. Like even with a sequel and and I, this it surprises me that sequels are so prevalent. I I think they're like really hard to do because like they need to they need to intrigue people who who are new to the series in addition to those who come in with all the knowledge um, gained from having experienced the previous installment of the story. Um, so, but yeah, the 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 main point is just to approach story from the perspective that you need to win over um, the audience. And I think this is especially true um, in a game where games fundamentally do not require stories in order to be good. Like, in a movie, you can't have a good movie without a good story, unless it's like a documentary. Like, even a documentary needs to, like, sort of be structured as a narrative, I suppose. It's true. But you have it, to care about that kangaroo or you won't watch. Right. But, <laughs> but yeah, like, in a, in, a work of, in a work of fiction, it, it, it revolves around the story, but... But in a game, you could you know you could make Tetris or something like that. It's an incredible game uh, with no story required whatsoever. Um, so if you if you like accept that story is an optional uh, component of what makes a good game, then then like the story needs to work very hard uh, to uh, to convince the player that the story is like worth caring about. And I think the way to achieve that uh, is not by like forcing the story on people. Um, I, I I have a very high tolerance for like long cutscenes and stuff like that. Like I love Metal Gear Solid. Mm-hmm. Um, I love a lot of Japanese RPGs that are like the worst culprits <laughs> as for like having long periods of non-interactivity. Uh, but um, yeah, like I would not want to do that myself when it comes to working on stories and games because I I think like a lot of players out there just they're there because they want to play, not because they want to watch. Um, so if the story can win them over, then great. Um, and that was, that was our goal with Bastion with having like the, the narration that just sort of, it doesn't interrupt the play experience. It just keeps up with however quickly or slowly you're playing. 
hopefully it, it, it'll sort of like, you know, uh, hopefully it'll just intrigue you and um, you'll want to start paying attention to it. Um, and that, that was the, the idea of it, you know, part of what was cool about the technique for us was that it allowed us to um, have the narrator only talk about the stuff that was like pertinent to the player at the time. Like the, we were talking about the bartender. Mm-hmm. He's not telling you about the bartender before you go in the bar. Um, he's all, he only tells you about the bartender, you know, when you see him and when you destroy him, because um, those are like the only times that he's going to matter to you. Um, so that was the the general approach to like giving exposition and giving story, and and I think it worked out pretty well. I mean, frankly, like the game is still, um, uh, you know, some people are still critical of it from like saying like uh, the we knew that the narrator wasn't going to be like for everyone. Um, it's still like a pretty he has a lot to say over the course of the game. Um, but at least uh, he doesn't get in the way of you being able to to play and advance and do all the stuff that you could do in the game. Yeah, I like the fact that you can explore areas that you are not necessarily required to move forward in the game if you want to learn more about you know that area or your character. And yeah, I don't have a problem with the narrator at all. I think people uh, can just tune it out if they don't like to hear it. Yeah. Exactly, as opposed to like an unskippable cutscene, like before right, a boss fight right. or something like that. And it's amusing when you fall and he says rude things about you. <laughs> yeah, no, that stuff is fun. Ex- exactly, it's like it, those uh, those moments were very key to us. So it was, it's great that people like that kind of stuff because it's like he he's like playing with uh, the rules of the game uh, in a way like he you you learn a lot about this narrator character through some of his kind of quipping mhm expound upon the immediacy in storytelling and revealing the emotional range of a story it seems like simple themes uh, that stick to the point are kind of the best do you agree with that well yeah uh, yeah so like the the emotional range of a story this is something that like um i i i took a um I took a story. There's a guy who gives the like a, a pretty well-known story seminar named Robert McKee. Um, he it's he's focused around screenwriting, but a lot of the lessons apply uh, to any kind of uh, storytelling. Um, and his his point his point is to reveal the emotional range of a story early on, um, because like if you if you have like a really serious story. And then, you know, in the last scene when the tension is really high, you try to crack a joke, uh, no one is going to laugh. Like, no matter how funny the joke is, because the audience does not... Like, the audience hasn't been conditioned to laugh up until that point. They don't, like, sort of... They're not mentally processing the potential for the story to go in that kind of direction. Um, So so the point is to to kind of uh, suggest what all that kind of stuff can be relatively early on. So, So in the case of Bastion... You know, the narrator is funny and and melancholy and sad and serious and all these things within the space of just a few minutes, um, because we want we want the implication of that emotional range to be there from the start, uh, so that the player knows, like, okay, it's okay to laugh or it's okay to take some of this stuff seriously. Um, I think, like, psychologically, it um, it really helps uh, to do that. As far as the the themes of the story go, it's like I, I was very interested in. In, in dealing with kind of like universal themes, um, and that and that ties back uh, to the thing about you know why why have a character who who does not have extraordinary powers? Because um, because I think like a lot of games, 
um, a lot of games deal with like you you must save the universe or something like that, and and Bastion does have that quality, but it was meant to be this very personal story uh, about like sort of surviving in this situation. Um, that's that's more. Uh, that that hopefully is like on some level easier to relate to than like I must you know save the galaxy from mm-hmm. from evil or something like that because like no one knows what that's like or how that feels but but people do know what it's like to feel alone and lost um, and 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 some of those types of experiences that that the kid uh, is going through um, so. So the story was meant to was meant to evoke um, universal themes that like regular human beings can relate to, and I think like the 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 degree to which you know the conclusion has had an emotional impact on on some players, I think is is directly as a result of that. Um, I, I I'm not sure that it's possible uh, to have like a to get a strong emotional response from people if if your story is just about you know kill the bad guy or, or something like that, which most of us you know we don't. We don't know what that's like or why, mm-hmm. why that matters or anything like that. Um, so yeah, the the uh, and like the the theme, you know, the the story themes. Um, I we decided on early, um, and and they really helped me from a writing perspective because uh, I I kept coming back to them with with the narrator's uh, dialogue or monologue, I guess I should say. Um, is just uh, making sure it was all kind of coming back to what what the story was really about and the things he was saying. I think it helps, too, to have this sort of larger story of trying to, quote-unquote, save the world or trying to fix the Bastion broken up into the separate parts as well. Because there's something kind of satisfying bringing each section back and then watching, you know, life come back to the Bastion. And you sort of get emotionally involved in, like, seeing it grow, you know, slowly. Yeah, that that was really um important actually because it's like it, right from the start, you know, the narrator has this he has an unusual voice and and like I think like a lot of people's first re- reaction to him is like not to immediately trust him. Um and um but it is so it was very important for us to show that in fact like this plan to to complete the bastion, it's really it really like something's really happening here. Um, as you as you bring these things back, it really does um, do something positive. W- one of the things that, that was also important uh, to me from a story perspective was for like the the basic story of the game to be very simple. Um, that that the 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 essential thing that you are doing is you're trying to fix the bastion, and mm-hmm. you need to find these these cores, and they make the bastion better, and and that's it. Like that's uh, that's all you really need to understand so that you don't feel lost in terms of what your goal is through the game. And then from there, um, we could layer a lot of complexity um, onto the story. And um, and that's that's fine. It's like, I think some people interpret that in a way where they're like, oh, it's a, it's a really simple story and there's not a lot to it, and that's fine. Um, because I, I'd rather people understand what they're doing than just to have like this like labyrinthine crazy story that's that's really hard to follow because uh, games are often played in in bite-sized pieces and i i uh, you know i i we try to avoid as much as possible the the experience where people could like come back to the game and not know what the heck they were supposed <laughs> to be doing it's like the, your, your basic path is always uh, pretty clear in the game 
Right. I remember you speaking about the debate between, I guess, giving those who play to the end a reward by showing them the excellent, amazing, you know, special content and kind of throwing your content to the beginning to give people kind of a taste of what they're going to see. Uh, there's kind of differing philosophies on that. What would you say Bastion does, and what do you think is the best approach when you're creating a game? Oh, okay. Yeah, I think you're... Um, I, I feel as though there are a lot of games that are made in a way where the developers have put forth uh, a disproportionate effort into the early part of the game, um, and and sort of the later you get into the game, the less time was invested into those sections from the perspective that, hey, fewer and fewer people are going to play this stuff anyway. So 5% will to... complete it, so we're not going to make exactly. an effort after... Yeah. It, 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 precisely. And I find I find that to be a very, like, it's a, it's a pragmatic attitude. Like, I understand that, you know, when games are made on a very tight schedule, that that's the reality. But there's something so deeply cynical about that. Um, and I really dislike it for that reason. Um, so... Yeah, the idea that like you should only you should make the beginning part really good because if people like that, then you know then they'll kind of suffer through crappy parts and uh, like the good part at the beginning, you know, will hopefully leave a good taste in their mouths and they'll put up with less good stuff later. It's like d just don't put stuff that's less good. It's like better <laughs> to have a shorter game. Um, but but again, I, I you know I I think I'm uh, in in fairness I'm I'm uh, oversimplifying. Uh, part of the uh, part of the issue there but but I do think it's true that a lot of games have disproportionate polish uh, at the beginning so in our case uh, yes the beginning was extremely important to us um, but um, so was the end uh, and and so were you know so, so was the whole so was the whole <laughs> game really um, we we wanted the game it's like we know that fewer people will finish the game than will start the game. That is obvious. But, like, we built the game for the people who will finish it, not for the people who won't. Um, and, and that meant um, setting aside time to make sure the ending was, was as strong as we could, as possible. We wanted it to end strong. Um, and because, we, again, it's like we wanted it... It's not a multiplayer game that people are going to be playing for two years. It's not like Counter-Strike or something, or <laughs> counter people playing Counter-Strike for like 15 years. Um, but So the best we could do is make something that, that could stick with people in their memories. Uh, and to do that, I think you need, a, you need to finish strong with it. Um, so yeah, in our case, it just meant setting aside extra time. Like we didn't even, we're like, we don't, let's just carve out a big chunk of time to deal with stuff in the ending. We don't even know what that work is right now, but let's make sure that we don't run into that problem where, you know, we get to the end of the project and we, um, and we haven't invested in enough time into, into making the ending of it feel very rewarding for people. Cause like the, the person who our game isn't, it's not short. Um, you know, it takes a good eight hours or so to finish the first time through. It's obviously not like uh, there are some games that are much longer than that as well. But I, uh, my feeling is that like that eight hours of time, it's a big commitment on someone's part, and like they they should feel good at the end of that, and not like they just got shortchanged by some kind of crummy ending. Mm -hmm. Like most most video game endings, I think are very. I mean, it just. I don't think video game endings have a good reputation on the whole. Let's let's put it that way. Like, nice. usually you get to the end of a game and it's, 
you know, it uh, roll. You get your little cutscene, and then you. And yeah, you get, and you say, "I played eight hours for that. I could have looked it yeah, up on YouTube." Yeah, and I think that's part of why people. I, I think that's part of why games have conditioned people to not finish them because you have that experience of like, okay, it's just going to go on like this. I I don't want to, like, why bother? I could just move on to the, the next game now. I I don't, mm-hmm. I don't feel like there's going to be something good waiting for me at the end. So I'm not going to go to the trouble to finish this game. Um, one of the reasons I really like the Final Fantasy series, even though they drive me insane for so many reasons, is that the end is usually really epic. Yeah, no, it's true. Uh, Final Fantasy VI uh, uh, or IV um, in the U.S. was had its like 22-minute ending or whatever it was like so fantastic to me when I when I first played that game. That was like probably the best ending in a game that I'd seen up until that point because uh, it was. I mean, it just fully delivered mm-hmm. uh, on on everything like you could have possibly wanted of like a, an epilogue for every character you cared about and all this kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, the, I, I think I gained uh, an appreciation for game endings. Well, I mean, some role playing games have done it really well all along, but yeah, I agree. the The Final Fantasy games have uh, generally done a fine job of of making making good on the big investment that people put in to like playing that far mm-hmm. well good i'm looking forward to finishing then uh i, yeah, wanted I to hope ask i you. haven't talked sorry i hope <laughs> i haven't talked it up too much no, no, uh, no. the only thing i would say yeah like i said it's it's up to people to like judge you you know how good or how bad it is the the thing i could say objectively is like we we put a bunch of time into it <laughs> like <laughs> heard about it on that level um so hopefully good. it pays off for for people what is it like for you to be all done with this after having spent so much time is it odd to be finished well like on on some level we're we're sort of not done with it yet in the because uh, we're uh, like we just released the pc version and uh we're still uh, supporting and maintaining that version stuff like that um but um certainly we're not uh we're not killing ourselves quite as much as we were earlier this year as we were wrapping up uh the full game. I mean it feels really it feels great to be done with it and and to have seen the response that it got um cuz this was our one chance to try to you know to try to put ourselves out there as a studio and make something that that like people cared about and and um we certainly put everything we had into it, but there, the, you know, games are not rewarded for effort <laughs> on the developer's part. They're only rewarded for um, how 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 good they end up. And thankfully, yeah, people liked what we did um, on the whole. So the response we got is, has been very uh, fulfilling. And you know, I, that's speaking generally, I guess. And for me personally, since this was uh, my first time, like um, uh, writing, uh, like having that kind of responsibility over the entirety of uh, writing a game story and coming up with the world and everything, I'm I'm very glad that that aspect has been well received because it means I I can uh, keep keep doing it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Getting paid. I, no, yeah, it, what I want to keep doing. Um, so I'm glad that people like uh, you know that yeah that that, that the work has generally been well received. Um, because uh, I I don't want to I don't want to pursue something that I can't uh, do that I don't feel like I'm, like, proficient at or can, like, add s- something to. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that all the stuff that we put effort into on this game is the stuff that is, uh, s- seems to have stood out to people. You know, everything from the presentation to to the story to the gameplay and all that, that's all the stuff that we cared about the most, and 
Um, very yeah. reflected, I think. No. Uh, we're getting close to ending now. Is there anything you didn't get to say about any of the topics above that we talked about? Uh, I think I think we covered a lot. I mean, I I, I would just yeah. I, I again, I really for for those who've given the game a chance, we really really appreciate it because we are you know a previously unheard of studio and we're a small team and this is our first game and all that and people have a lot of choices out there um and our game you know doesn't have a two or a three in the title and so on so i think it takes uh, it's a bit of a risk on the on the player's part to even uh, take a chance on something like our game and uh, so uh yeah we really appreciate um that that people have tried it um because we yeah we just wanted people from day one we just wanted people to be able to play it uh, for themselves and see what they thought. Excellent. A big thank you to Greg Kasavin. You can find him on Twitter at Kasavin, I'll spell it K-A-S-A-V-I-N, online at supergiantgames.com, or his blog at kasavin.blogspot.com. If you'd like to leave some feedback or keep up with the news, you can find me on Twitter at Gray Area Podcast, at Facebook slash Gray Area Podcast, or on iTunes. If you have any gray areas in your relationships or just need a new perspective, please email me your questions, advice, or suggestions to Genesee Gray at Yahoo.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week with a new episode.